What is up, everybody? Hey, you've done it again. Hey, no matter what um, application, do we say application? No matter what app or device or whatever you're using to listen to this, once again, you have hit play. Well done. You never know what you're going to get on the Praxis Podcast when you hit play, but you've done it again, so blame yourself. And thanks for listening in. My name is Drew. I lead Praxis Church. And it's so great to have you along on this journey as a community as we wrestle through some things. And it's so great today to have, I was going to say a chat with you, but it's probably more like, I think podcasting and this whole idea is probably more like a chat at you. But either way, so pumped you're listening in and uh, checking in once again. Now, a week and a half ago, we started to land a series that we're in called From Redemption to Recycling. Basically, this fall at Praxis, what we wanted to do is talk about everything. So many questions as we kind of live this out as a community. So many questions come in about all sorts of things around theology and God and life and how the world works and what it means to be human and all this. And we really felt like it was important just to put everything on the table. And so if you've been journeying with us and you can go and listen back if you haven't, we've talked about a lot of stuff, a lot of things. And a week and a half ago, we actually started to land this series uh, together, and we had said that there were a couple of topics that were really important that were kind of left unsaid. On Sunday, this past Sunday, we had our Christmas party as a community, and of course, it was off the charts. Man, just a partying, eating together community we are. It was just so fun to be together, to have games, and just a life in the room. So much fun as we kind of kick off the Advent uh, Advent seasons, sorry, and an Advent series. But we needed uh, to to have a few minutes, and I said we we would wanted to do this kind of in studio. I don't know if you can really call this a studio. It's like my basement with a microphone and a MacBook. But anyways, really high budget around here, I tell you. Um, but we do have a few things. I mean, there, obviously, there's tons of questions still left unspoken. But there are a few things that have come in over the last little while that are important. So what I want to do today is just take a few minutes and wrestle through a few more things. And we'll call this quits as far as from Redemption Recycling after this teaching. So this is it. I would imagine down the road, if you hang with us, that there will be a 2.0 at some point. This has been easily the best received uh, series and teachings that we've done. Tons and tons of dialogue. We've heard it through people, through social media, through email, and um, on the ground, as somebody who's a part of community, like Heather and I, we run a community, a Praxis community midweek out of our home. The, The discussion around this has been top-notch. And so I think it's actually spurred on some things just to get people talking talking and wrestling about all that we've talked about, things like hell all the way to creation care and so on. So we're pretty pumped about that and uh, we'll, we'll look to the future, but we are as a church going to be journeying now through the church calendar from Advent all the way up into Pentecost and you can join in. And I always say this and we'll say this in the Advent in our Advent series, it's not like we stop wrestling through questions. We continue on, but it'll be more centralized and uh, maybe not as specific as, hey, here's a, here's a topic and let's talk about it. But of course, our teaching always um, purposes and desires to engage with culture and the moment that we're in. So that's never going to stop. But this has been really great. But here's a few things that have kind of been, I, I mean, just left that we didn't have time to get to in our teachings and even in the midweek stuff that we did. 
in this next few minutes, and it may not be a few minutes, I've got a ton of notes here from stuff uh, that I've prepared along with some content from over the years around three particular topics. One is election, predestination, and free will. This, my friends, always comes up. Are we elected? Are you kind of chosen before the foundation of the world by God to follow Jesus and be given his spirit and are, are others not? So those who would not profess Jesus as king and Lord and given their allegiance to him, do they have no chance from the very beginning? I hate to break it to you. Some people think this. We're going to talk about this. What does election and predestination mean? Do we have free will? So that'll be question number one. Question two, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to talk about... <coughs> gonna have to do some editing maybe maybe now editing come on do we really want to be that polished probably not um the second question is this um is around the bible the bible a lot of people out you're like this is going to be short not this is going to be that short um i want to take a couple minutes and just talk through what the bible is and some ways in which we should read it and then three, we're going to talk about violence in the Old Testament. I'm so glad you hit play. I'm so glad you're with us. We're going to talk about the question that people have is like, what the H-E double toothpicks is going on in the Old Testament with all the violence and all like the kind of crazy stuff you see, like God commanding what feels like genocide in the scriptures. How do we reconcile a loving God and then you get to Jesus and is Jesus like the hippie liberal son who kind of comes along and tells everybody to love each other and kind of chill out? Uh, how does this whole story work together? I know it's a, a, a question that a lot of people ask. So probably these could each be a podcast on their own. We got to move into the next season, my friend. So we're going to do this all at once. So um, brew a coffee. Hit, hit pause, brew a coffee, maybe get a beverage of choice, or uh, maybe you're just cleaning the house or doing the dishes or you're on your run. Don't don't stop and get a beverage then, but do, do hang in with us because I think this will be good, all right? So question number one, election, predestination, free will. Are we as Jesus followers? So I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I have Jesus' spirit within me. I put my trust, my faith, my allegiance in Jesus. And, and I follow him with my life. But what about people who don't? It feels like there's a couple texts in scripture, especially in the New Testament, around Paul's teaching that would suggest that some are predestined for this and others are not. Like as individuals, individual salvation. Some win the salvation lottery and some don't. How do we reconcile that with a loving God? Is that how we're supposed to read this idea of election, which you read in the scriptures, and, and free will? There's other scriptures as well. Let me just even read Ephesians 1. Uh, let me read verse 4. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Verse 11, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. So there you have it, right? As an individual, right? This is what it's, is this what it's saying? As an individual, before the foundation of the world, I am chosen, or sorry, God is, yeah, God has chosen me before the foundation of the world because I'm a follower of him, but others he has not. I'm not sure that when we talk about election and predestination, that we should be reading it in individual terms. And this is what I want to talk about for a few minutes. You can totally disagree with this, but actually, no, I don't think that like some of us have won the salvation lottery before the foundations of the earth and others have not. 
I believe in Jesus, God put on display what God is like, and he's inviting the entire world to bow their knee and give their allegiance to him. And that's open to anybody, anybody that breathes and lives and is a human in this world. One of the things we have to grapple with in this is asking when we read Paul's letters, who is this written to? Because here's what we like to do. A couple thousand years later, we like to pick it up in Starbucks, you know, a nicely brewed coffee sitting there reading my Bible. And so many people just want to apply it to themselves as individuals. But remember, even in Ephesians 1 here, this particular passage is written to who? A church, a community. This passage is more corporate than it is individual. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible talks about individual salvation and individual salvation and profession of faith in Jesus is a thing. But in the Western world, we've kind of, I think we've just stumbled in to individual Christianity. We want to make everything individualized. We want it to make it about me. So Jeremiah 29, 11 is that God has a plan for me. Well, we all know it was written to Israel in exile. It was for them and it's for us now collectively. And I would say we need to read Paul's letters in context and understand that when they were in a home church in Ephesus, they were getting this letter and they would have read it in light of it being a collective community together. Now, what we often forget is that there's all sorts of Jewish imagery that charges not only the Gospels, but um, Paul's letters. Paul's letters are filled with, uh, Paul being a great Jewish scholar, uh, you know, working in the Sanhedrin at some point, he has the story of Israel in mind. And so he's using terms and phrases throughout his letters that would really pick up on the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them inside and out. And so his letters and Ephesians is charged with imagery, even though he's writing to Gentiles as well, with the Old Testament scripture. And when we talk about election and predestination, I don't think it's as individual as much as it is corporate. And that's leaning into the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, Israel, as a community, was elected by God to be a blessing to the world. And I love uh, Gus Conkle actually is a great uh, theologian. He was one of my professors in seminary at McMaster Divinity College. He said this about Abraham's covenant. It should be translated like this in the Hebrew scriptures. Through you, the world will receive the blessing. So when God is speaking to Abraham and saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, through you, the world will receive the blessing. And that was the hope for Israel as an elected people to be the vehicle that through them, through this people in the Old Testament, they would bring and and see the world receive this blessing. And I actually think that doesn't change. Now the church, though I'm not Jewish, the church and you and I who follow Jesus may not be Jewish, we're brought into this community. We are this new Israel that through us, the world would receive the blessing of Jesus. So when we talk about election, God has elected the church. I think this is what it means. God has elected the church to be the vehicle to the world. And what we've done is a lot of people have made this very individualized. You can do that if you want. But honestly, I think it begins to mess with God's character a little bit. To think some are chosen for salvation and some aren't. 
I don't think is what these what these terms mean in their context. We have to remember that these letters were written to communities and God, God through Paul's writing, is saying to these communities, you, you are these elected people. You are these predestined people, just like Israel in the Old Testament, that through you, the world would receive this blessing, this blessing of Jesus. And I'll just say this, it's very far from God's character, I think, it's kind of sadistic to say that some have no freaking chance from the beginning of the world. Like some are in and some are not. And hopefully you win that one by God's choice. I think actually goes against his character and is taking out of context what election actually is. Election is corporate in the scripture, not individual. I know if you hit into YouTube, guys like John Piper and many others will push against this and always say that it's always individual. But even look, verse four in Ephesians one, for he chose us in him. In him, we were chosen, verse 11. So there's no individual language there. It's a corporate language. And I think election and predestination simply means that the ch- Israel in the Old Testament, now the church being grafted into that, is are these elect ones. But that doesn't mean that before the foundations of the earth that um, I won the salvation lottery. I don't think that at all. I think that's very sadistic. And if we do that, it really begins to mess with God's character. And even what the gospel means in Jesus fulfilling Israel's story and offering his life on display and inviting every single person in to give allegiance to Jesus. That's what the story is all about. And so do I believe we have a will? Yeah, I believe. Is there freedom in God's good world to choose him? He's chosen us, but to reciprocate my my allegiance back to him? Absolutely, I believe that. And God is so loving that he gives us an opportunity to respond to his love and what he's done for us. Now, some people are going to say, well, what about the Apostle Paul and so forth? Sometimes we have these examples. I think actually there's all sorts of examples um, across the board of different ways in which people come to know Jesus. But I do not think that, um, I don't think that our will is all of a sudden wrapped up and we have no choice. I do believe we have a choice. So think of election. I would just encourage our community to think of election, predestination, and free will, but especially election and predestination in light of it being something corporate or communal. And that's the thing. We want to make, again, we want to make salvation individual. And of course, there's an individual component to it. But when you get to the New Testament letters, they would think of this primarily as corporately. Salvation, again, as we've talked in the series, was a very political thing. When a ruler brought salvation, it meant for the whole community. And I think Paul writes in light of that. And his language says, hey, you and us, we have been elected to be this community. All right? So there you go, election predestination. There's, I mean, so much more that could be said. I, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think a guy named Mike Erie, Mike Erie did a great job at talking about uh, election. I think the title of his podcast was Election, It's Not What You Think. And uh, as he shared in that, um, I would sync up very much with a lot of what Mike uh, says in that podcast. That may be something you want to check out in further because we're kind of short on time if you haven't noticed. All right. Next question. Sip of coffee first. Is that all right? Take a sip if you're uh, you have a uh, coffee in your hand. Give me a second. Oh, so good. All right. Second question: the Bible. Oh, how much time do we have? A lot of people ask about the Bible. 
Um, partly because we're in a moment, and I was going to read some stats to you, we just don't have time, about how um, the trends are shifting in how much even Christians engage in the scriptures. And it's a thing. Uh, Bible reading is in decline. It's so available to us. I was thinking in my home how many Bibles we have here, let alone on every device we have. And yet when we have something that's really easy to us, it can also become a commodity at times. The more access we have to something, sometimes the less we use it. But the bigger question is like, what is the Bible? Like, is this something, especially a lot of skeptics would ask, um, so do we take this whole thing literally? Like there's some weird stuff in there, like a talking snake on page three that you got to kind of wrestle through. So what's going on? Well, obviously we don't have all the time in the world to talk about every question around the Bible. But I did want to give you, we did a series maybe a couple years ago called The Book of Strange New Things based off a novel where this Anglican minister goes to Mars or uh, into space and he begins to evangelize and they call this Bible the Book of Strange New Things. It's a crazy little novel, fun little read. The Book of Strange New Things. And really, the Bible is, when you come into it as a new follower of the way of Jesus, it's a strange new world written millennia, thousands of years ago, in the ancient Near East primarily and in the first century, the Greco-Roman context, worlds apart from what we have, and then we just get it here. And let's be honest, a lot of Western people do some really weird stuff with it. Can I get an amen? I don't know I don't know where you are, but if you could give me an amen on that one, that would be fantastic. We get it into the hands of people that want to make it about the Western world and even the way we live now. And you got to realize there's this chasm there. And you know that if you've been around our teaching, we're always trying to take context best, uh, take the best context. Again, the same thing with election, predestination, and free will. We take, I think, the right context and the way to approach that. I digress. Anyways, I want to give you a definition of what I have, we have come up with in what the Bible is. And I want to talk a little bit about the Bible. All right, so the Bible, I think, is this. And some guys from the, pro, uh, the Bible Project have put a definition together. There's another teacher, John Mark Comer, that's done some work on this too. But this is what I would say. The Bible is a library of writings written by humans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, revealing to us the story of God's work in the world, God's kingdom at hand, and God's incarnation, which is Jesus, as humanity's true king. The Bible is a library of writings written by humans, inspired by the Holy Spirit, revealing to us the story of God's work in the world, God's kingdom at hand, and God's incarnation, Jesus, as humanity's true king. Now, here's what the Bible isn't wasn't a set of gold tablets that just kind of fell out of the sky and boom, there you have it. The problem that many people have is we forget where the Bible came from. And I want to take a couple minutes and just talk about the fusion that the Bible was written by human hands, it was written by humans, and it was inspired by the Spirit. Because if you get that, then even what skeptics may point as contradictions or things that don't sync up, there's things, if you just Google, you you know there's people out there that are very hard on the inconsistencies in the Bible, violence, things around it. But if we understand the human process in it, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, 
it changes the game in how we approach the Bible. This is like the most important thing. So it's not these gold tablets like that just fell out of heaven. It wasn't like these writers were like in some sort of Holy Spirit trance writing uh, the scriptures. They were very real people that God used in the process to do this. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk a little bit about the Bible written by humans inspired by the Spirit. Now let's talk about the first place where the Bible actually talks about the Bible. Have you thought about that before? Where's the first place that the Bible talks about the Bible? Well, in Exodus 17, if you know the story, God takes Israel out of slavery and they are called to commemorate this event, Passover, with a with a meal. Now, where we get in Exodus 17, they are in the wilderness heading towards Mount Sinai and the Amalekites come and attack them. And it's interesting, if you know the story, as long as Moses has his hands up, they're winning the battle. And uh, God ultimately, over time, gives them victory. And so after this, in Exodus 17, it says this, verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, write this, write what, so write what has happened, on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalekites under, from under heaven. So, God says to them, what's happened here? Write it down. Write it down. Write it on a scroll. See, the scripture is an act of remembering and retelling the great acts of God in human history where God redeems and rescues his people. That's what Tim Mackey would say. So the scriptures, even here you see it in Exodus 17, you write it down. It's to remember and to retell the acts of God in human history where God redeems and rescues his people. So then you get to Exodus 24. God gives Israel the law at Sinai, and his vision is that Israel would be a community of priests in the world. The word that's actually used between God and his people is this thing called a covenant. And a covenant, just like at a wedding, is where you declare some things and you sign. So Exodus in Exodus 24, we see that the covenant is actually confirmed. Let me read it. I know we don't have a ton of time, but Exodus 24, 4 to 7, it says, He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. This is Moses. And set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. Very interesting. And the other half he uh, splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it aloud to the people and they responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. The words of the covenant are about inviting God's people into covenant to live differently and to be a contrast community. So the Bible, that's where you hear about the Bible first, Exodus 17 and 24. It's a storytelling document and it's a covenant document that Israel would continue to go back to the writings of the scripture to remind them of this covenant that they've made. So the Bible is both human and it's divine. It's written by people, but it's also born, we see it right here, born out of history. And most people have a view of the Bible that isn't really rooted in history. It's like people think it walked its way down Mount Sinai or something, or, or kind of just kind of appeared on its own. It's a human book, the Bible is, that speaks God's word to his people. 
And here's the thing. The Bible is not threatened by history. And I just want to, when I walk with people around the Bible and what is it, I always want to remind people that the Bible has human hands all over it. Please do not spiritualize it. Please actually don't make it something that it isn't. This woo-woo, kind of weird, again, writers in a trancing. That's not it at all. Actually, when you actually read the Bible, oh my goodness, the human hands that are on it is all over the place. You want to talk about a few of these? I know we don't have time, but let's talk about a few of these. Let's talk about First and Second Samuel compared to First and Second Chronicles. This will just show you the humanness of the Bible. Second uh, uh, Samuel records in its writing the, de- the decline of David as the dissolution and the dissolution of his family. So First and Second Samuel, but Second Samuel specifically talks about David's decline, and it's very emphatic about the decline of David. And yet, First and Second Chronicles, which is like a retelling of the story, it retells the story to a new audience. And you know what's interesting about it? It actually presents David with very few flaws. So Second Samuel, First and Second Samuel, all about David's decline. But the almost the same story written First and Second Chronicles. It actually paints David in a better light with very few mistakes or flaws, which is funny. Now, the reason for that is that 1st and 2nd Samuel were written before uh, or during the exile. So 1st and 2nd Samuel were written before or during the exile. So that's why there's the emphasis on David's decline and, you know, the not so good things. While Chronicles highlights and was written after exile. And so it paints David in a better light. Now, the question is, which is true? Ah, right? Two different things. Two different books or chronicles. You have first and second Samuel, and then you have first and second chronicles. And they're kind of in some ways saying somewhat different things. That there's actually there could be bias in it a little bit by the writer. And yet it's still scripture. Human hands are all over this sucker. Here's another example: Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah, let's compare Ezra and Nehemiah to Esther. Because Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read it, they oppose the integration with the surrounding non-Jewish population around them for the sake of the survival of the Jewish people. So Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read it, are very very anti-kind of intermingling and integration with non-Jewish people. Yet you read the story of Esther, and obviously the whole story supports the integration with the surrounding non-Jewish population for the survival of the Jewish people. So the very same thing, the very same outcome, the survival of the Jewish people, Ezra and Nehemiah say no, and Esther kind of gives a story of yes. It's written by human hands at different times. What about this? What about the variation in the Gospels? There are, and this should not be a surprise to you, that there are small variations in the Gospels. You know, a lot of liberal scholars will say that they're not... uh, they're not credible, right? Because of some of the variations or skeptics will often say this. And so people will freak out, right? But remember, at first the scriptures were passed on orally. They were not written as much as they were passed on orally. And then later on they were recorded. Now think in light of telling a story. 
if I were to tell a similar story, and I'm just thinking about the greatest story in my life was when I was 12 years old and I almost got my finger cut off because I was 12 and my hands got warm and I was playing pond hockey and for a minute I took off my gloves and then my coach skated over my finger. Oh yeah, you should have been there. It was amazing. You could see the knuckle and everything. I hope you don't, you know, you know, get sick, but it was true. It was a phenomenal moment. I still have my finger. Now I tell that story often. This is like my dinner party story or if I'm around people that I don't really know and, you know, it gets awkward, I can always just talk about the greatest moment of my life where I lost my finger. Now I've told that story a million times and there would be variations in the way that I tell it. Not not because it's not true or it happened or even the tr- that that I'm telling truth that I'm not telling tr- that I'm telling truth, sorry. You couldn't point the finger and say I'm not telling truth. I'm absolutely telling truth. There's just variation in the story. And the variation in the gospels does not mean it isn't true. If anything, it's actually quite the opposite. It makes it legitimate some of the variation, because we all know if we were to tell a story, and especially with the gospel writers who took time and energy to make these things literary um, options for readership, and like there's a literary side to it, and the way they crafted the gospels, the variation is okay. We need to take a deep, it's actually okay. The reality is human hands are all over the scripture. So that's why I freak out, or sorry, that's why I don't freak out, hello, that's why I don't freak out, and I don't think we should freak out when people want to point and say there's inconsistency, just take the human side of it. I mean, even Paul, it's so funny, one of his letters, I can't even remember, I think it was 1 Corinthians, he's writing about, you know, I didn't baptize anybody, and he's like, oh, wait a second, maybe I did, and he actually names a couple people, and you're just like, bro, this is so funny, because this is a great example of Paul being very real, that he... He's writing this, inspired by the Spirit, but the humanness, the human hands are all over this thing. And we just have to keep that before us, that we're dealing with different writers at different times. That's why we use the word literary. It's different genres in the story. Um, I think one teacher put it best that we should read the Bible uh, not necessarily literally, but literarily. We should read it in its context, in a genre. What, you know, you have poetry and then you have gospel narrative and you have letters. You have all sorts of things in here. You have ap- apocalyptic literature. You have to read it in context and human hands are all over it. Now with the Bible, a few things you should know about the world surrounding the Bible. Ready for your mind to be blown? This is for good Bible readership. If you want to be a good Bible reader, you should consider these things in reading the Bible. Number one, ancient and first century societies were predominantly uneducated and oral dominant. And what I mean by that is the ancient world was consistently hearing dominant. So even when we hear about people like memorizing the Old Testament, it was more oral than it was written. So the general population in the first century did not own documents. They had little access to documents and would largely be incapable because of education of reading documents. One scholar said reading and writing were restricted to the professional elite. The majority of the population was not literate. So the book was not really an invention to the Greek era. It was spoken but before it was compiled and written down in the first century and especially before the time of Jesus. So just remember that these the scriptures were actually passed on orally before they were written down. And a lot of people have a hard time because you want to talk about the letter of the law or the letter of the Bible and what does the Bible say. But for people at Jesus' time, 
especially Jewish people in the Old Testament, they would pass it around and the way they would do it is they would speak it orally and that's how they would pass it along. Number two, in the ancient world, here's something you need to know, scribes had a particular influence presenting scripture. Now, if you're a real conservative, don't fall off your chairs here, but a lot of people do not know this, that scribes who were scholars and teachers of the day They actually wrote and they edited, yes, they edited and they copied and they gave public reading and they interpreted the scripture. If the Bible became the word of God like it is today, in which we believe it is, it was due to their presentation. I want to let you know that there's presentation to the Bible. It was edited. It was brought together. It didn't just fall out of the sky as some like, again, golden tablet that just fell at it you know perfectly that there were scribes and people over it who were often employed in the process of compiling the scriptures one scholar says even uh even manuscripts of the pentateuch had insertions and deletions so the pentateuch are the first five books of the bibles they had rearrangements and they had paraphrasings Human hands had their hands on the scriptures. Scribes actually made the scriptures presentable to what we have today. And even with the gospels, they were written years and years later. There was a process in which these these people who wrote this, there was an editing process. Just like today, if you were to present something, you would have an editor. And this is the Bible that we have. This is legit true about the truth that is the Bible right? Number three, in the ancient world, there was greater emphasis on authority than there was authorship. John Walton talks a bit about this, that there's greater emphasis in the ancient world on authority. Who is the authority over it? So in the ancient world, the emphasis wasn't on authors or books as much as it was on authorities, scribes, and documents. There were no authors and books like we know it. The community actually had a part to play in it. So um, Isaiah, here's an example, had three parts. Uh, great example of Isaiah is, the, it's three parts. In the third part, Isaiah is actually dead, yet he is still the human authority attached to the book. So we have Isaiah in the Old Testament, the prophetic book, but the last third, the third part of the book, Isaiah is dead, which means there was other humans at play in the compiling of this, this book. And it should just remind us, Human hand. Yes, it's inspired by the Spirit, but human hands are all over the Bible. So there you go. I'm always passionate in telling the people the truth about the Bible and how we got it and the importance of understanding the Greco-Roman world at its time, especially as these things were compiled. And a lot of people don't realize that there was, wasn't as much emphasis on authorship as there was on the authority of a community over it. And so Matthew, his name is on that gospel, but there was a community that had... He was the authority over it, but um, there was no doubt that there was an editing process and all sorts of things to get it into our Bibles the way it is. And that's in Greek, let alone now translating it into English in the different versions. Anyways, hanging in. I hope you're hanging in. The Bible is a library. Just remember, it's a library. It needs to be read in its context. Now, is it legit? Because people will say, we don't have the original manuscripts. And that's true. We don't have the original manuscripts, but we have a lot of autographs. Now, the question becomes, are we okay with that? 
because a lot of skeptics will point again, uh, we don't really have the original manuscripts. So there, is it really legit? But here's the thing. We don't do that with anything else. There's actually other Greco-Roman literary, what some would call actually masterpieces of, of at the time that were written. They have the earliest copy, um, but they don't necessarily have original manuscripts. And we take those things as legitimate from Herodotus. I think the name is Herodotus, which, which was a work written uh, between 488 and 428 BC. The earliest copy was uh, at AD 900. So there was 1300 years between when it was written and its earliest copy. And there's only eight copies found. Uh, to Caesar's Gallic War, which was written between 58 and 50 BC. The earliest copy was found uh, AD 900, so there was a 950-year time lapse between when it was written and when its earliest copy was found, and there's only 20 copies, and yet we don't go to those things, and there's other, I think of Homer and other other writers and other um, other literary pieces throughout the, to- the times, especially the Greco-Roman world, where people would actually wouldn't fight at all the legitimacy of them. And yet with the New Testament, people kind of get their, I don't know, they get their underwear in a knot about things. Like, can it be really true? But here's the thing. The New Testament was written between 40 and 100 AD. Its earliest copy was 130 AD. So there was only the time, you know, for Herodotus, it was 1300 years. For Caesar's Gallic War, it was 950 years. But for the New Testament, the time lapse was only maybe 30 to 130 years. And we have how many copies? Well, there's 5,000 plus in Greek. I think full manuscripts, 350, 10,000 in Latin, 93 in other, 9,300 in other languages. And so I just got to wrestle with like, why do we take other literary pieces legitimately from that, from those days and times around the same time period? And yet we don't, a lot of people will point to the illegitimacy of the New Testament and I just think we got to be very careful to play that game because if you want to do that with literature in and of itself, the Bible and the New Testament and its authority and its legitimacy trumps all of these other pieces. And I just think we need to think through that. I think everybody needs to think through that. That's not because I'm a Jesus follower and I'm looking to try and like pull out some card out of my back pocket. It's just true. If you put it up against what some would call secular works, it holds up as legitimate, even though we don't have original manuscripts, because we're talking about a long, long time ago. So I think we should be very, very careful to uh, just say something's illegitimate because we don't have the original manuscripts. So that's a little bit about the Bible. And I just think there's some important things that we all should know when reading and engaging it. Again, it's a library and it takes time. So I've shared with some people, this is a season right now where I'm taking my daughter who's 11 and we're just reading through the Bible together. We're actually taking three years and I'll just say this, this is kind of off the notes, though there's really not a ton of notes. Um, this has been a really important thing, an interesting thing to do. And is honestly, I think, something every something everybody should do is read the Bible through with somebody and wrestle through it. I give her tons of opportunity for questions. We go very slow. And it's just been a real uh, engaging thing for me too. And by the way, if you read Genesis and Exodus, like we're only at the, or I think we're nearing the midway point of Exodus. So we got a long ways to go. 
But just the questions that arise and the messiness of those, especially those first two books, um, it's real. And just leading her in what this is and how God uses such messy stuff. It's, this is what has made it legit for me. So lots of questions around the Bible, but I think those are some helpful things to get us thinking. Now, the final question is this. What do we do with violence in the Bible? Like, what do we do with violence in the Old uh, Testament? Again, uh, so many people, like, this is actually a make it or break it thing for a lot of people. Is God some sort of sadistic being that, you know, commands genocide and is just out to destroy people who are not followers of him? And I get it. You can open up the conquest, especially in the Old Testament, and read some interesting things. And how do we land with this? And then you get to Jesus, which we want, we're going to get to in a minute, who seems to give a much different way than what we see even Yahweh commanding in the Old Testament. So here's what I want to do with this. Before we get to Jesus, there are some people that have done, I think, some good work providing some different positions on how we should uh, approach violence in the Old Testament. And this is just general stuff that they've kind of put together in presenting their position. It's not that I agree with all of this, but I think scholarship more and more, and and even practical guys like a guy like Joshua Butler, um, are trying to, pastors, are trying to kind of reconcile this. And I think there's some interesting ideas around why there is the type of violence and the type of things happening in the Old Testament. And then you get to Jesus, which is much different. So I'm going to highlight the work for a few minutes of a guy named Preston Sprinkle, as well as Joshua Ryan Butler, and then uh, the legend to many, uh, Greg Boyd. So Preston Sprinkle uh, has a great book. Uh, actually, I think it's written at a popular level, but I think is one of the best books on nonviolence that you can read. It's a book called Fight. And he talks in his book about how that God's ideal is Eden. That even after the fall, the rest of Genesis promotes peace over violence, even when it seems like people deserve the latter. But in, in all reality, God's ideal for humans, we get a picture of Eden and God's ideal is Eden. So you, you read the story as things unravel through sin and rebellion. Killing is sometimes sanctioned by God in the Old Testament. But Sprinkle would say this is not the way that God wants to deal with his enemies. God's original plan for humanity is shalom and not violence. And even through the Old Testament, uh, again, Sprinkle would continue to argue, let's look to Eden. Eden is the ideal. Now you get to the law. The Mosaic law was not God's ideal. The law of Moses was there to guide Israel. But again, if Eden was ideal, then the law isn't ideal. So there's all sorts of interesting things. And if you've ever picked up a Bible, like I just said, reading through with Ava, we're going to get to this in a little while, you know, a few months down the road. There are some gnarly things within the law. But the law was to guide Israel, but it wasn't ideal. God, in some ways, and I know some of these scholars talk about God's kind of stooping down and accommodating. So Sprinkle would say this, the old and new covenants are different. He says, please note, I didn't say that the God of the old and the God of the new are different. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But sometimes his rules change because his relationship to humanity is taken to a new level. In short, he says, the law was not God's ideal moral code for all people of all time. 
Rather, God met the Israelites where they were and began to take incremental steps toward his moral ideal. Nonviolence, it's not just a New Testament invention, it's the capstone of the old. And so Sprinkle would argue, again, that the ideal is Eden and God accommodates or takes incremental steps towards his moral ideal. So the law accommodates the moral norms of the ancient Near East to exist. They had to take part in these structures, the people did, while at the same time critiquing them. And so this is why even things like um, there's different practices and different things that aren't maybe necessarily exactly outlawed, but today seems so kind of foreign to us. So it didn't allow, uh, sorry, the law didn't outlaw every less than perfect cultural practice like polygamy. So there's one, right? Polygamy, it seems like there was still some of that, or slavery, or even things like divorce. These things were accommodations uh, at points. So Paul saw that the law served the purpose of guiding Israel for a period of time, but listen to what he says, but was not intended to give us a never-ending moral absolute or absolutes. So you get to the Canaan and Abraham story. It's it's interesting in and through this that Israel is actually the underdog in these stories when we talk about violence. In Israel, Israel comes out of Egypt and God, it's funny, has some really ridiculous battle strategies for them. And it needs to be pointed out that they often didn't involve swords or spears or weapons like we know it. Some of the, If you read through and you actually take notice, some of the, the, the strategies that God had for Israel in these battles was ridiculous. So, for example, Jericho was the first battle in the Canaanite conquest. And God's command for them was to walk around the city once for six days. And then on the seventh day, walk around it and make a bunch of noise. Right? Like this, in some ways, is pretty ridiculous when you think about what God's calling them to do. And yet God was provider and worked on their behalf. Uh, Gideon. It's interesting, the strategy here. Okay, so basically what they were to do was the army was pared down to nothing. And they were to use torches and trumpets. Let me repeat, torches and trump- trumpets, and we know the story if you've read it, Yahweh confused the opposing army and they start actually killing each other. To David and Goliath, the famous story where it's just little stones and a sling. In Second Chronicles 20, instead of using weapons, God calls Israel to fast and pray and sing songs. And God, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, gives Israel some ridiculous battle, battle, battle strategies and these things actually work. So Sprinkle would kind of point out to just kind of the ridiculous nature in which God worked among Israel. And yes, there was violence and some of this was accommodated. God was kind of, again, it seems like um, stooping down and meeting them where they are because remember the cultures around Israel were very violent. And there was, it was seemed like it was different for Israel. So uh, Sprinkle would say that Israel did not glorify violence like the other nations. The violence in the Old Testament is actually toned down compared to Israel's neighbors. And Israel was egalitarian. Yahweh was their king. Right? So it's so funny. We've got to be careful, and I agree with Sprinkle, to misapply Joshua to our everyday life. Um, Sprinkle would say that the conquest that we read in Scripture was a one-time non-repeatable event where God brought judgment on those around them. 
So what this has done is because of some of the violence, a lot of people in our context feel like military violence is the way in which God actually wants to advance, especially in America with Americans, wants to advance uh, America. Jerry Falwell called America back to biblical values, which he felt included patriotism and a strong military to ward off the threat of communism. Wayne Gruden, who's a pretty decent scholar, reform guy, he said, genuine peace in the world comes through the strength of the United States. And he said this, CIA drone strikes notwithstanding. And yet, what Sprinkle says is that if North America, so if America, for example, was to fight like Israel in the Old Testament, this is what it would look like. Enlistment would only be volunteer. The military would be funded would not be funded by taxes. If you're just thinking, if you look at Israel in the Old Testament, the military would not not stockpile superior weapons. If America was to fight like uh, Israel in the Old Testament, it would make sure its victories were determined by God's miraculous intervention, not by military might. And the military would fight outmanned and undergunned in their battles. So Sprinkle's trying to kind of make this point that. Israel was not fighting from a a position of strength and power and military power. They were always the underdog. They were always the little guy. And it was these little miracles along the way. So to us, the Old Testament seems like a bloodbath. And in our context, it kind of seems like a bloodbath. But compared to the other nations, the law, uh, to, to the other nations, the law in the Old Testament seems tame and almost absurd. Like what it records is very, very tame, Sprinkle would say, in, com- in comparison to what's going on around, especially with the neighbors of Israel. So something to c- keep in-, in mind. He goes on and talks about the conquest of the Canaanites. Um, he says that this always gets people thinking and talking, you know, with the the, the Canaanites. The people want to go here. How could God kind of command genocide? But after coming, Sprinkle would say, after coming out of Egypt, why would God tell his people to take the land and to destroy the Canaanites, right? Joshua 9 through 12, if you read this, it's uh, an interesting thing where God actually commands, again, uh, it seems like he commands genocide. Well, that in turn turns us to another guy. His name's Joshua Butler. He wrote a fantastic book, by the way, one of the best, called uh, Skeletons in God's Closet, and talks about uh, hell, judgment, and holy war in that. And he talks about this idea of the Canaanite genocide, if you're hanging with me. And he says this, that the cities that God instructs to take out were actually military strongholds, not civilian populations. So one of the things that uh, Butler argues is that these were more military strongholds than they were uh, civilian populations where a lot of people um, lived. So we think of it, uh, you know, even in the Joshua episode, like um, Jericho, we think of these places as like heavy populated areas. But he would say in the ancient Middle East, it's actually different. City, the word city was better known as fortified military outposts. So he would say, think of the Great Wall of China. So in these quote unquote cities is where soldiers were not actually where civilians lived civilians women and children especially lived up in the hills so he would say for example Jericho was only six acres and probably at the time of its conquest only had a hundred to 150 soldiers so when Israel utterly destroys a city like Jericho it's better pictured as a military fort that's taken over not a civilian massacre 
Uh, for example, he goes on and he says that 12,000 were defeated at Ai. And some scholars note that the translation is better translated 12 squads, squads, sorry, with each squad having about 10 people in it. So whatever that is, 120 people. And he goes on and says that kings, when it talks about kings in these cities, they were more like generals. So just a way of describing, in con- Butler's what he's trying to do is describe in context that it was more military posts than it was like these this civilian massacre and taking out c- civilians like this. He also goes on and says that the Old Testament makes it clear that it, and this is going to be a stretch for some of us, but the Old Testament makes it clear that it is using over-exaggerated war rhetoric. Have you ever thought through that before? Could the writers of the Old Testament, because they're human and humans' hands are on this, yes, inspired, but human hands, could there be over-exaggerated war rhetoric? I know this will make fundamentalists go a little uh, crazy, but if we're going to read something from thousands of years ago, we should probably read it in context. And I agree with Butler. There was probably hyperbole, even what he would call ancient trash talk or exaggerated war rhetoric that was used by the writers and this was actually common in the ancient near east uh, ancient near east you know you often hear uh, you know you'll hear a, a sports team say we want to annihilate you well we know like that that doesn't mean legitimately annihilate you and it's interesting that even the scripture i mean even ancient near eastern documents outside of the old testament would use a lot of this rhetoric and it's not necessarily foreign to the Bible. It's interesting, you know, when it talks about that they annihilate them, but yet in First and Second Samuel, they're still fighting, right? So just remember when we read these things that there could be over-exaggerated war rhetoric because that was actually a thing in the ancient Near East. And we just got to remember the context around that. Butler would also say this. He would argue Uh, just around the violence in the Old Testament, that the Canaanites were driven out, not killed off. Now there's some, I'll just be upfront, there's some debate about this. And I even did a teaching once and somebody came up and was very adamant that this is not true. But Butler would say that the, the people that were kind of being taken over here by Israel were driven out, not killed off. Butler says that the term driven out is used most for the Canaanites, not killed off. It's used 50 times. So, he would argue, think about the people being driven out of the land. Total ni- annihilation was not the case. He goes on to say, being driven out is the language of eviction, not murder, and likely a rowdy dancer, uh, sorry, and like a rowdy bouncer from a club, if you're not driven out, the good news is you're still alive. God is like a gardener chasing out the hooligans who've been trashing his vineyard. Like a landlord evicting the unruly tenants who've been destroyed, who've destroyed his home. God is evicting larger and stronger nations that Israel could never take out by himself. Butler would say it was God's judgment and persistent evil, not genocide, that these nations rejected God's grace. And it also must, must be noted that after the conquest, God commanded Israel to wage war focused on defending the land. So after the conquest, he would argue, everything, Israel was then on the defense. This does not have to do with any other nations today and cannot justify violence over land today, which very much syncs up with Preston Sprinkle, who would say that the conquest was a one-off thing and then Israel defended themselves. It also must be noted that future leaders took this way 
too far away from God's heart. And this is what Butler would say. So future leaders in Israel kind of got off track. So Saul took on a militaristic way of leading. He formed a professional army, waged war out of personal vengeance, and had a government-funded army, which was new. And so kind of taking it further and and away from God's intention, he talks about how David's power bred violence as he continued to wage war on his enemies. These political leaders became known as like military warriors. And David slowly and subtly became a me-centered warrior king. And if you know anything about Solomon, he stockpiled chariots and horsemen, which he was instructed not to do. So I think uh, Preston Sprinkle and Joshua Ryan Butler, from their just their research and kind of grappling with the story here, come to similar conclusions that God accommodates and it's not always what we think in the writing. Like we think annihilation, we think um, maybe extreme. And it's not that they're necessarily downplaying it. They're just talking about in its context that that could be very much a possibility. And the continued reality that Israel was the underdog. And it was really some crazy strategies that God used in and through them. It's not like they were trying to go out and destroy everybody around them. But when you take in the ancient Near Eastern, in the, in the context, how brutal the nations were around them. And, and how, at times, it seems like bloodthirsty they were. Israel was the little guy in all of this. And so the conquest was one thing that should not be repeated again. That's one way of looking at it. Now, hanging with me? Oh, man, a lot of stuff. Well, how, how far are we? We're almost at an hour. You're hang, If you're still listening, you're hanging in there. Well done. Enter Greg Boyd. Um, pastor, scholar, has given his life's work to present a Christ-centered hermeneutic when it comes to how we view violence in the Old Testament. I have read a bit, well, I've read his popular book on this. I have not read the full, um, I don't even know the title of them, the full books that he did on this. And um, I, I understand where Boyd is coming from. It's something I'm wrestling through and I'm pretty open in how I'm trying to think through violence in the Old Testament. I think Preston Sprinkle and... Uh, Joshua Ryan Butler have highlighted again what some other scholars have done a lot of work in, but Boyd has come from a different perspective, and I just want to highlight it. Boyd believes that the entire scripture is about the cross of Christ. And through this, God stooped down to the level of the cultural conditions of the Old Testament authors to, and this is where it's a little different, God stooped down to allow himself to be portrayed as violent. So Boyd would say, like, God's not violent here. He's allowing the authors that write these stories to portray him as uh, as violent. That this is something the authors are doing. So I think one of the arguments is, okay, you have an ancient writer. He's a Hebrew. You know, he's trying to defend his people. He sees some of the violence around him and gets, you know, these writers in their mind think that the violence is through God, but through a Christ you know, centered hermeneutic, that's not necessarily true. So Boyd would say this, when we read the Old Testament as pointing to the cross, we actually find that while biblical authors ascribe horrendous violence to God, their own accounts make it clear that God didn't do the violence that they ascribed to him. Huh. When the biblical authors say God engaged in violence, a rereading through the cross suggests that it was actually something God merely allowed. And within the passages themselves, there are clues 
that point to that point to this fact. So I think what he's saying is you have violence in the Old Testament and the writers attributing to Yahweh as violent. We have the cross of Christ in the New Testament and we should almost read backwards through the cross. Boyd would say that through the cross, we see within the passages of violence themselves, the nonviolent character of God comes breaking through. I'm not going to say much more on that. It's a very interesting way of looking at it, looking back through the cross. And the idea of the authors attributing to God as violent, but him not being violent himself, being actually opposite and allowing things to happen is is very, very interesting. This is something that's fairly new. Um, I think there's some things to to take from Boyd in the Christ-centered, again, cross-centered hermeneutic and how we should read these things. And I would just encourage you to engage that more. Uh, it's some different different perspectives in how people are trying to kind of grapple with the violence that we see in the Old Testament. And I think I think it's very important because people are asking, again, questions about these things and wrestling through how a good and loving God could act this way. And then you get to Jesus. And so I would, I would wrestle through with these things. Um, you know, the the uh, uh, Preston Sprinkled, uh, Joshua Ryan Butler, you know, maybe it's not as much as what we thought. I think that's there. Uh, the ancient war rhetoric, I think, is something that we need to take into consideration as far as like the trash talk. Like, um, you know, numbers, numbers, even in the Old Testament, um, are always interesting because it's it's said in other ancient Near Eastern documents that there could be exaggeration. And so how do we look at those things, you know, with the very human side of the Bible? With all that said, I think we should grapple with violence in the Old Testament. But here's the thing. We get to Jesus. We get to Jesus. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives antithesis or antithesis to some of what we read in the law, which simply means He's giving a new interpretation. And when Jesus gives a, a new interpretation on something and we have it in the scripture, we need to take it very seriously. Matthew 5, 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over the coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, Jesus here is a quoting Exodus 21, 24 and Leviticus 24, 20. And he counters an understanding of Torah with his own kingdom ethic, right? So in the Old Testament, you had the Lex talionis, the law of retaliation. It included both capital punishment, life for life, and corporal punishment, tooth for tooth. And yet Jesus comes and his antithesis to some of even what we see in the Old Testament law, his kingdom vision is non-resistant love. So no matter no matter how we grapple with why there's violence in the Old Testament, just remember that the Jesus way is non-resistant love. Jesus ends the Mosaic command to show no pity and places orders for his followers to be merciful. And he writes says, or in the text here, it says, do not resist an evil person. And he Wright would say, don't use violence to resist evil. Do not resist, be ready for an act of grace. And so Jesus denounces resistance. The kingdom will not trade in retribution 
because people will live justly and lovingly and peacefully and they will love one another. The law could be seen as permission from God rather than the intent of God for his true people. And so Jesus' point is that his followers would respond to others with non-resistant, life-transforming love. And here's what I love about Jesus. He actually gives examples in this text. So we can wrestle through the Old Testament stuff, but when we get to Jesus, Jesus gives us example in this text how to behave non-resistantly to evil people. And these examples emerge from the concrete experience of subjection to Rome, grace beyond retribution, social customs. And it's interesting what, what Jesus does here. Listen to what he says. He gives, I think, four different ways in which we behave non-resistantly. Number one, he says, if anyone slaps you. He's so creative here because if you know the context, being hit by someone while facing them with a backhanded slap was pretty much the biggest insult you could give somebody. In an honor-shame society, to hit somebody with the back of your hand is like a crazy, biggest insult. In the Mishnah, which was like oral tradition in the in the Jewish community, it talks about how a backhanded slap was paid with a double fine if you were uh, beyond the, a normal slap. So it was like a double fine, a backhanded slap. Instead of striking back, which would have been justifiable through equal retribution and to the law of Moses, the no mercy law, Jesus creates an almost laughable scene of grace to how to respond. His followers are to turn the other cheek also. So here's the, the most insulting thing you can do in that culture. Hit, slap somebody you know, on the right cheek. You know, it gives the, this picture of the back of your hand because you know, the dominant hand is typically right-handed, though, even though I'm left-handed. You hit somebody with the back of your hand, you're hitting them on the right cheek, and Jesus says, turn the other cheek also. Crazy. This is the kind of love, this is the kind of way Jesus calls his followers to step into. Two, he says, if anybody wants to sue you, and it's interesting the outworking of this, men in that culture wore two levels of clothing, an outer cloak and an inner garment, basically a coat and a shirt. And if someone sues you for your shirt, what Jesus urges his followers to do is to go further and give them the coat as well. The coat or the robe was used as both a cover and a sleeping blanket in that culture. But in the Old Testament, there were laws that prohibited taking the robe for any length of time, which is interesting. So the person suing goes for what's legal, right? The legal, what they can do legally. But Jesus goes further by urging his followers to relinquish their rights to a robe. What? This would deprive the person of standard comforts and provision. Insane. What Jesus says is to strip in front of the person as a, this is the picture he's giving when he says this, to strip in front of the person as a means of exhibiting radical distance from the social custom. Then he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, interesting, Roman soldiers had the legal right to put citizens in this culture um, put citizens they were over to work as aid in the Roman military. So basically what would happen is a Roman soldier could approach you as a, a citizen or anybody in that culture and could definitely approach one of Jesus's followers demanding them to carry something a mile. This was often done in this culture. 
And what Jesus is saying is you go beyond their expectations and you actually don't just do the mile. You go the second mile and uh, you help them to mile number two, which is unthinkable. Uh, It's totally upside down. When people would hear that, I mean, we hear it, you know, if anyone forces you to go a mile, well, first of all, nobody's forcing us to go a mile, you know, go with them too. This is this is what it means in this context. This is how crazy this is. This is the kind of creativity that Jesus is using to win over, in a sense, the people over them. And then he says this, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Jesus here subverts the cultural norm by creating a system of grace, a consistent of compassion and love. What I think Scott McKnight would call the ethic from beyond. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn anyone away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here's what this does when we live this way. So this is the Jesus way. You get to Jesus, nonviolence. One, it subverts the power, right? So when I let you slap me on the cheek or take my coat and I go the extra mile, think about it. How much more power do you have over me? If I'm going way beyond what you're asking for or what you're doing to me, how much more power over me do you have? It's brilliant. It's the, the like, this is crazy brilliance from Jesus. Two, this is what it does. This is not as much passive in what Jesus is calling us to as it is creative. Right? It's create. It's creating a new way of life and a new way of thinking about violence and the way we treat each other. And three, each of these things happen to Jesus. Think about it. Everything that Jesus is calling his followers to do here in Matthew 5 when it comes to... Um, uh, nonviolence and giving our lives. Listen, he was beaten, right? He was slapped. He was stripped naked. He walked on a cross to his death and he gave without getting in return. Jesus put it on display. And now he's asking his followers to be creative in the way in which they enter into violence, which I strongly believe is a nonviolent way at all costs. So here's the thing, nonviolence and enemy love, Here, can I just say it, is not exclusively an Anabaptist thing. I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters who are Anabaptist, but a lot of folk have kind of taken this as their thing. Nonviolence and enemy love is not exclusively an Anabaptist thing. As much as the Holy Spirit is not a Pentecostal thing, or theology is a Baptist reform thing, or Eucharist and the Lord's table is an Anglican thing right? All of this is embodied in the life of someone who follows Jesus. Nonviolence is something we enter into as people who follow Jesus. I love Jesus. And honestly, that makes me suspicious of violence. And here's the thing. One of the questions I ask when it comes around violence is, can I carry a cross and a gun at the same time? I believe in the kingdom of God and I believe in the kingdom. It gives us a picture where we trade our swords to plowshares. So we do everything in our power to peacefully reject violence and all that it brings in all of its forms. And we live in a violent culture right now. And honestly, we're getting what we get, right? We're getting what a lot of times we're putting our our energy and our time into when it comes to violence. It's coming back to us. We live in a violent culture. And we need to be very careful that that doesn't bleed into the way of Jesus in some political or socio-political way. 
the Jesus way is so much different. Anyways, holy, I got a little preachy there at the end. I just think we need to think, obviously, about violence in the, in the Old Testament. But at the end of the day, as people quibble about that, not quibble, but like they write about that and they bring different perspective, we know what is very, very clear. And what's very clear is Jesus of Nazareth calling in us into a life that is so different and it's creative. Somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other. What? Somebody has to go a mile, you go a second. What? How, how can I have any more power over you as a Jesus follower? When Jesus followers are called to give their power away, right? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. With that said, closing the notes, the note, the, the, the few notes I had, we're done. Thanks for listening. This has been super long. If you made it to the end, you get a prize. I don't know what it is, but just reward yourself with something. I'm so thrilled and thankful again to be a part of a community that is wrestling through these things. And I'm also, it's been great to have some conversation along the way, not only with people in our community, but from beyond. So thanks to some of you guys that have been listening. We're really excited about the next season of Advent and then Epiphany after uh, into 2020 and some of the things we're going to be engaging. We will never stop wrestling through cultural topics and important theological topics. But I, uh, we are excited to kind of join in this next season in the church calendar. We hope you keep listening. We love you. Grace and peace. We hope that this Christmas season would just be amazing for you as we follow the King into the life that he has for us. Grace and peace, friends. We'll talk to you soon.